Happy Palm Sunday. We're excited that you're here today. I could just hear the crowds roaring. You can picture it. Jubilee all over the place. Sounds of joy and people rushing to see him as he walks. I, I think you think I'm talking about Jesus, but no, I was actually at the Masters on Wednesday and Thursday this week, and uh, my boy Tiger Woods, and I didn't get to follow him because there were such big crowds, but you could hear the roar as I was following Dustin Johnson and uh, uh, a couple of other the best golfers in the world. You could hear the roar and the crowds gathering around him, and, and the reason why I bring this up, first of all, bucket list, yeah, Masters, that's awesome. But it reminded me what it looked like when Jesus came on Palm Sunday. The crowds rushing to see this man, a savior, someone who's going to take Israel and move them into that place that they've been yearning for for a, th uh, a thousand years. This triumphant entry. And I love Palm Sunday. This is my favorite Sunday. For whatever reason, this Sunday to me means everything. Because for once in, in life, when we read the scriptures, the world, the city, the county, the country is worshiping Jesus as he is to be worshiped. Lord of all. Waving palm fronds and celebrating our Savior. And I get so pumped up on Palm Sunday, almost a little bit more than Easter Sunday because it's busy. Palm Sunday is a crucial time. It's a powerful time. It's a preparation for us as we head into, we don't call it uh, 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 Easter week. We call it Passion Week because our staff, our leaders, our church is going to lay everything out on the line this week because this is a huge week. And your job as a believer is to open up your heart and get prepared to what God wants to do throughout the week, inviting people and sharing faith and telling people about Jesus. This is an important time in our life because people are excited to hear a little bit about Jesus. They come to church once or twice a year and they're like, is this the time that God is really going to speak to me? And our job is to be invited. And share. And that's why we do our thing. If you've never seen what we do on Wednesdays, you got to come. Even if you never come back to church again, and that's okay, and you find a better church. you got to come on Wednesday or Friday and see what these guys do. Because it is powerful. It's amazing. And I guarantee you, it will change you from the inside out. As Jesus is walking, I've been to Israel. It's, uh, it's an awesome place. And at one point, he's going from Bethany through Bethpage. And I think we have a map of him heading into the temple. He goes through this beautiful region, the Kidron Valley. And I don't know if you guys realize, but we talk about this a lot on Palm Sunday. It's up. It's, it's, it's like the masters. There's a lot of hills you can't see on TV. It's the same. Look at this next picture of the Kidron Valley. Look how high the elevation is. That's the east gate. It's blocked off, and they've got places. That's where Jesus is going to come to to take, uh, bring back victory. And Jesus is ascending into this glorious place, and he's going through what we call the East Gate. And he's celebrating the way that God wants him to celebrate. This is a triumphant entry. It's grand. It's ceremonious. The sun is shining. The crowds are waving palm fronds. The music is, uh, the music is majestic. People are shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. There's such jubilee because they see a savior, a king like they've never seen before. Well, we're glad that you've come and joined us today because I believe that you will get something powerful, not only through that worship. Was that powerful worship today? It's so good. But I believe God will speak through us as we go through this series called The Death of Death. 
It's a crucial time for us as Christians to lay things down and to die to self, to die to doubt, to die to fear, to die to despair and depression and really live and truly live in Jesus Christ. That's the point of Easter and the point of Easter Sunday and Passion uh, Sunday and even Palm Sunday. My hope is that you will become an offering to the Lord. You ever think about Romans 12 where it says, I'm to be a drink offering. I'm to be an offering of worship to God. This week, you should find some, some time to, to pray, to fast, to commune with God, to ask him, who should I bring to the kingdom? Who should I bring to church? And if you need to go to another church because they want to go to another church, we share. It's okay for you to go to another church. As long as we're celebrating. When the kingdom wins, our church wins. And we're excited about that. Today we're going to discuss doubt. We don't talk about doubt a lot at church. And what I want to do is I want to kill the concept of what we think about doubt. We're talking the death of death. Some of the concepts of doubt we need to destroy and we need to let those go, go by the wayside. I, for some, they're going to break the chains of doubt. Some people are strangled by doubt. And they can never really move into that great place of faith. And for those, and there's a handful in here, they're like, I've never doubted since I've accepted Jesus. You might be a saint. And I want to know you. Because we're going to see today one of the great warriors, one of the great leaders in, uh, of, of Jesus' time has got doubt. What happens if we doubted every relationship? What would your marriage look like or what would your child or your parents' relationship look like if you doubted every aspect of that relationship? I would assume probably not very good. But what would it look like if you had that one relationship, that, that one, that, that Psalm 27, 4, that one thing that God says? What happens if that one thing, that relationship that God says is more important, it's putting him first, if you never doubted that relationship? What then would your life look like? That'd be pretty amazing. Even as this world brings us trials. On Palm Sunday, the community, the, the country, the, the world was thriving and being blessed by Jesus because of who he was and what they thought he might be. We're going to have a new political regime. We're no longer going to have this evil dictator and we're going to have this new concept of kingdom and Jesus is like, yeah, but not the way that you think. It's a great day to celebrate. But in just a few days, the shouts of Hosanna in the highest turn to chants of crucify him. Because of some lies and some untruth, all of a sudden the community that was celebrating the king is now challenging and crucifying the king because of a little bit of doubt. And a few lies. And that's all the enemy needs to change and turn your life around. So if you're able to stand, let's use our memory verse today. We're going to use it. We're going to talk about the death of death. Our sermon series will conclude next week as we talk about it. What we do at our church is we open up the word of God and we believe the power of the word. And we use it to really speak boldly into our lives. And so we're just going to read our memory verse and use it. Isaiah 25, 8, we read it, and, and this is what we are to memorize as we talk about the death of death. And here's what it says. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears. He will remove forever all the insults and mockery against this land. And he signs, seals, and delivereth. The Lord has spoken. 
You know, our church, we are a church of prayer. Our prayer team has been really helping us build the congregation by healing us inside and out. And our church this week is going to be focusing on our three sections. This is Team Salvation. They're praying for salvations in our community. Thanks, Rachel. And then we're praying for, in the center section, we're praying for God to reveal his heart and soul to everybody in our world. This is Team Revelation. We're excited about that. And then this is where I sit and I pray and I I accelerate. This is Team Transformation. They're praying that God will transform us. I wonder if I started here, would they still be louder than over here? So we're going to pray today and uh, pray throughout the week for salvations, for revelation of God, and for the transformation of one person at a time. Lord, we come before you. Lord, I could just worship you today with all of our heart and soul. And as I was singing that song, I know that for thousands of generations, we join in that praise today. We celebrate and we honor you. And we come before you with a powerful, a powerful offering from our heart, Lord, from the deepest part of our soul. Bless this day in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now, the church doesn't like to talk about doubt. The church hates the concept of doubt. But the Bible has a lot of topics about doubt. One of Jesus' apostles was called Doubting Thomas. We, though, as Christians, kind of shoo-shoo doubt. We don't want it to be in the forefront because many people have it. But there's a a major theme in the Bible, and, and several whole books talk about doubt. Listen to some of the books that can talk and deal with the issue of doubt. We have Ecclesiastes, Job, Lamentations, Habakkuk. They all talk about being doubtful and having struggles with relationships. You can look at some of the Psalms, and the psalmists write about doubt because it's a major theme. We have doubt. And next week, there's going to be many that come into church that doubt Jesus and doubt Christianity and doubt that I have to give money into an offering to celebrate God. And we need to start preaching against it and speaking into it. And we need to destroy some of the concepts of doubt. Break the chains of doubt for some of you in here and strengthen those that don't have doubt so that they can help carry uh, the cross of other other people that are struggling with doubt. You know, when we look at doubt, there's really three, uh, three categories. This isn't the, the psychology today doubt categories. This is just something that we put together. And here's the three areas. The first one is called the intellectual doubt. Now, these doubts arise from outside of the church. They're usually people that aren't Christian. They're probably atheists or agnostic. And here's some of the questions. Is the Bible really the word of God? Didn't humans write it? That's the question that they say. Another one that we would see, is Jesus really the son of God or is he just a good man? That walked upon earth. Yeah, I like him. I believe he was alive. He's probably a good teacher. But was he really the son of God? Or next week, did he really raise from the dead? I mean, come on, really? 500 people saw him, that's all? That's all you got? In the court of law, all you need is one, but we're struggling with the 500. These are raised from people in this world, like the movie Da Vinci Code and the book of of Judas. So there's this so-called book of Judas, and there's other books that people think and that creates doubt. And then we have leaders that are creating controversy, Dawkins and Harris and Hitchinson. They create doubt, and they do it very intellectually. I asked my 14-year-old yesterday, and she says, yeah, I have doubt when someone has a better answer about why not to believe. I'm like, wow, that's actually pretty good. And I said, I won't use it in the sermon, though, I promise. So don't tell Shelby, all right? 
Somebody will walk up. They talk about you. And she's like, are you kidding me? The first one is intellectual doubt. The second one is spiritual doubt. These happen within the four walls. These happen in this room. And here's what uh, spiritual doubt would be. Am I really a Christian? Have I really ever truly believed? Have you ever asked this? Why is it so hard to communicate to you, God? Why is it so hard to pray? I don't know. I start praying and instantly I'm falling asleep. It's great sleep though. Man, the best sleep I've ever had. Why is it so hard to communicate to you, Lord? Why is it so hard to pray and, and stay faithful? Why do I still feel guilty? Why do I still feel shamed? Have you ever asked this question? Why am I still not getting better? How come I'm not healed like that person over there worshiping? We start measuring ourselves and we have these what we call spiritual doubts. And the third one is circumstantial doubts. These is the largest category because it encompasses the whys of life. When we're in the concept of whys, we are living in doubt. And here's some of the questions. We did, why did my child die? Man, that's a tough question. And it happens. A lot of people in this church have happened. Why did my marriage break up? Why can't I find that relationship, that husband or wife? Why did my friend betray me? Why did my church hurt me? Where was God when my uncle or this person was abusing me? Those are questions we don't like to deal with. We meet these questions in the intersection of Bible faith and the realities of life, painful life, living in what we call a fallen world. When we deal with these topics, the great things can occur. What we'd like to do, though, is sweep these questions and these doubts under the rug and not deal with them and talk about something happier. But the church needs to be leading in the death of rejection and despair and even more doubt. Pastors have doubts. Elders have doubts. You have doubts. Many people have doubts. Some people don't have many doubts. I'm, I'm an optimist. But even as a people, uh, uh, people person, optimist, I've had a few fleeting doubts in my head. And I think that's okay. Here's the nature of doubt. Let's talk about the nature of doubt before we dig into this story in the Bible. The nature of doubt. Many people think doubt is the opposite of faith. That's just the wrong concept. That's actually the opposite of faith would be called unbelief. Doubt is something completely different. The opposite of, of, of faith is unbelief. Unbelief refers to a willful refusal to believe. That's what unbelief is. Listen to what doubt is. Doubt is, um, let me find it, refers to this inner uncertainty. I'm just not really certain today. I don't, I don't feel comfortable in my skin at this moment, and there's uncertainty. Another nature of doubt, many people think doubt is unforgivable. That's just not true. Did Jesus condemn doubting Thomas? No, he actually showed himself. And he, and he said through him, here's, here's where I'm at. Show, here's my scars. Feel them. It's not true. God does not condemn us when we have questions. Look at some of the psalmists and the writings in the psalmists. They're questioning God. Where are you? What have you done? Where? I don't feel you. I don't see you. I can't understand you. Both Job and David repeatedly questioned God, and, when they, and God did not condemn them. So he won't condemn you. Do you realize that God is big enough to handle our doubts and our questions and our uncertainty? That's the God that I believe. 
He can handle that, and he can work through that. And if you're open to that, he will work. Here's the last uh, nature of doubt. Many people think struggling with God means lack of faith. I don't know if that's true. You know, I, I, uh, I do a lot of relationship counseling, and I know this. Even with friendships and in marriages, if there's no friction, if there's no question, if there's no rub, you're not in a real relationship. If you have a spouse, don't look at her or him right now. But when you question him or her and you wonder, that friction, if, it, if it's done correctly, will bring you to a better place. Every time there's friction in my marriage, I pray, Lord, strike her down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Liz. She's not here. But <laughs> Wow, that's bad. I was really going to say something super nice. And uh, I know. Play for me, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, uh, this is the truth. That was a lie. This, what I would say is, every time I pray, Lord, bring this, make this, make this conflict, bring us closer together. Lord, be the mediator. Holy Spirit, bring us together. And every time one of us comes before and humbles ourselves who is wrong, and and it fixes and builds our relationship. Today we're going to talk about a Bible story that really deals with doubt. Do you remember when Herod? The, the, the leader of the Jewish people, the king of the Jews, threw John the Baptist into jail because John rebuked his marriage. Remember the story? You see that where Herod has married his brother's wife, and his wife, Herodias, is actually a cousin of the family. So a little bit strange already. And his brother, Philip, had a wife, and they had an affair, and he ends up taking her as the, 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 the queen. And John the Baptist is like, hey, you can't do that. You can't be the leader of Israel and leading our, our country and be doing that kind of lifestyle. And, and because of that, John gets thrown into jail. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're distant and disconnected, and when you're locked up, and if any of you have ever been locked up, things start to get confusing. No doubt, John was confused and frustrated by his incarceration. He was wondering, what's going on? Am I not someone that God has called to do wonderful things and set, be a forerunner of Jesus Christ? But as he's locked up, he sends a message to Jesus. It's like, I don't know what's going on. Is this really you? In Matthew chapter 11 today, we're going to go through 15 verses to talk about doubt and deal with doubt so that you and I can have a greater understanding. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 into all of, all of the region of Israel. And then in chapter 11, as the 12 go out, Jesus starts to teach about doubt. And here's what it says. When Jesus finished uh, giving these instructions to the 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist was in prison and heard all the things that the Messiah was doing. And he sent his disciples to Jesus. And here is the question. Are you the Messiah that we've been expecting or should be looking for? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Here we see this question. Now, if you ever, uh, I got a bunch, I got a shelf in my bedroom with a bunch of commentaries. And when you open up the commentaries, you know what they want to do? These great theologian leaders, some of Matthew Henry and some of these ones that have got hundreds of years of, of, of credibility. You know what they want to do in this section? They want to sweep it under the rug. They're not comfortable with the doubt with John because most people don't understand doubt is not always a negative thing. Most theologians want to explain this and push, don't want to explain it. They just kind of want to poo-poo this and say it's not a big deal. 
They don't like John's doubt. Do you? Most of us would say, I get it. I've had a little bit of doubt before or I'm sitting in the middle of this river of doubt that I can't get out of. And here, that's what we see. I understand their discomfort. I understand it. After all, isn't this John the Baptist who made these first public confessions in John chapter 1? He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. This is a confession of who Jesus Christ is. 1 John 1.29, if you go a few verses later, it's, he says, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. This is the same guy who is now a few months later saying, are you really the guy? And because of that, theologians and commentary writers struggle with this concept. Make no mistake, John knew who Jesus was. How could a man be so certain about Jesus at one point, now harbor doubt. Well, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give us great answer, but I want to look to some, some conflicts or some issues to help us understand this. First of all, one of the things we talked about was circumstantial doubt, right? When circumstances change, when there's somebody sick or someone dies in your life or, or something happens so traumatic, the circumstances in your life change and we start asking these why questions. And here, two things have changed. First of all, he's locked up separate. Second, he's separate from his believers in the sense that he's not worshiping and doing the work and will of God. And because he's not doing his work, he's feeling less than. And circumstances drive us to a place of feeling less than. Once again, I don't know if you've ever been locked up. Unfortunately for me, I have. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, but I don't ever want to go back. But here's some of the things that you hear about people that have been locked up. There's no place on earth that is more corrosive than uh, being locked up in a prison cell. Another person would say being in prison is like being dead. People don't, you don't feel wanted. Even if you get a visit once a month, you just don't feel wanted. And another one would say, it's Satan's playground. Some of the books in the, in the New Testament write to this, but you can get very dark very quickly on your own thoughts. And doubt creeps in. And you could be saying, Hosanna in one minute, and a few days later, crucify him. Crucify him. John begins to wonder. Wondering is good, but it, when it leads to doubt, it can turn negative. But here's the beautiful thing, and I want you to really focus on this. It's about asking the right questions. As John is wondering, and he's in this place of doubt, and he's locked up, and he's in this thing, and I don't know about you, but when we're in this, why me, Lord? That's the wrong question. It's not the right question. Here's his question. He asked the right question. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we be looking for someone else? It's a pretty honest question. Have you ever been in your prayer like, Lord, or is, is, it, is this really you? Are, are you really there? Are you really doing something? Is this really something that I should be believing in? And hopefully you hear God and he speaks boldly into your life. The answer that our Lord gives is very instructive. He doesn't rebuke John or put him down going, oh, you're worthless. You don't have little faith, which he says to many. He actually encourages him. He simply gives John evidence that he needs to, in order to regain his faith. Here's what it says. Then Jesus told him, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cure, the deaf hear, the dead rise uh, to life. 
The good news is being preached and tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away from me. The answer is six, uh, six miracles as evidence. He gives evidence. He doesn't condemn or he doesn't judge. He just says, hey, go and tell him what you see and here's the evidence. And really, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he says, because the spirit of the Lord is upon me, the, the the deaf are gonna hear and the lame are gonna walk and those that are uh, need healing will be healed and dead are gonna rise and the poor will be preached. Note what he didn't say. Tell John that I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 or the Messianic. He didn't say that. He didn't go out and say, I'm the fulfillment. Go and tell him that. He could have because it's true. He didn't tell him, I can walk on water. Tell John I walked on water. It was true, but he didn't tell him that. He also didn't say, hey, I can make the Pharisees look like fools and idiots and their wisdom look ridiculous. It's true, but he didn't say that. In essence, Jesus said, Go back and tell him my name. Tell him who I am. And tell him that because of my name, hurting people on the world are being radically transformed right before our eyes. That's a beautiful statement. Right before our eyes, things are being transformed. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowd. So now he has told him, go tell him what you've seen. And as he is leaving, the crowd is now looking going, hey, isn't this one of Jesus' disciples questioning him? And now as Jesus always does, he engages and starts to teach to the crowd. And starts to, to get a better understanding of what's going on here. Jesus begins to talk about him. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures referred when they said, Look, I am sending a messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare a way before you. At this moment, Jesus is starting to teach into their doubt. This man that's got doubt, he's now showing them this is a man that was sent to be a precursor to Jesus Christ. And he's teaching us as he's teaching them about doubt. Verse 11 says, I tell you the truth. All who have ever lived, there is none greater than John the Baptist. All who have ever lived, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Yet, even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from this time, John the Baptist, and from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking. I love that verse. Because that shows us that our kingdom that we believe in, that we love, and that we celebrate and we worship is forcefully moving, but there's a, there's a battle, and it's violent. And sometimes the enemy wins. And our job is to press in in those moments of doubt and let the faith of God rise up within us. Do you realize, oh, let me get to this last verse. And before John came, all the prophets in the law of Moses looked forward to his, this present time. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the moment that all the prophets and Moses have been building up to this point. Palm Sunday and Passover, that last greatest Passover. And if you accept, 
And if you're willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah. Jesus then claims that he is Elijah, the one of the prophets who said that would come. I don't know if you guys remember this. If he is Elijah, the text says that he is. Do you guys realize we went through Elijah last summer? Elijah struggled. He struggled. He struggled in doubt and faith. He went and has this great victory with the prophets of Baal. And and then Jezebel starts to come and he kind of goes and gets his tail between his legs and he goes under a tree and kind of starts crying and God had to work through him as well to build him up. And he had to go in and he had to go up into a cave and hear the voice of God. Elijah struggled with doubt. So did John the Baptist. And if you do, it's okay. And we'll get to that in a second. And then at the end of this verse, and this is where we're going to stop, it says, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. That's what they say in Revelation to the churches. At the end of every church, it says, anyone with ears to hear, take the cotton out of your ears. You ever heard this? And put it in your mouth. Right? And listen to what the word of the Lord is saying. And don't talk. When we talk, we mess it up. I'm professional at that. And by the way, I love my wife. If you're new here, my wife is awesome, and she's an amazing woman, and I say stupid stuff all the time. So welcome. <laughs> After questioning Jesus, John, John's disciples were leaving. And as they were leaving, they were listening to what Jesus was teaching. And not only was he going to say, hey, he said, his name's Jesus and all these things are being healed and people are being radically transformed. They're also telling him, look, he was praising you and he was lifting you up. He was saying, you are the guy. He was wrestling with his doubt. He was uncertain. He was unsure about Jesus, but Jesus was saying to him, John may doubt me, but I don't doubt him. He's still my guy. He's still my man. I still believe in him, even in the midst of John's biggest doubt. He affirmed his faith while John was still living in doubt. He didn't condemn him. He didn't shoo-shoo him. He didn't get angry with him. He knew that underneath all those doubts that there's genuine faith. Just like if you're in doubt today, he looks deep within your heart and he goes, I know that faith is in there. And you just need to harvest that little mustard seed a little bit more. Go get some mulch from Home Depot. Put some mulch in there. Get the weeds out of there and let that faith grow. And that's what Easter week does for us. We can't let our whys, why me, God, take us out of the will of God. I want to get to some application today. Doubt doesn't, uh, does have its uses. I don't know about you, but doubt has often led to deeper uh, places of faith. When I was a young man of 20, I, I was pretty out there. Drugs, alcohol, and I had some crazy thoughts. Anybody 20 have crazy thoughts before? There's a whole line of 20-year-olds right there. They're, you guys don't have any crazy thoughts. But I had some crazy thoughts of who Jesus was. Is he an alien? Is he a spaceship? Is he a superhero? Is he Zeus's kid? Who knows? But when I started opening up the word of God, I started to know. Doubts can lead us to a greater place and a deeper place. And because of those doubts, I know God filled those voids and filled me up. The Bible tells us that doubt is, 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 is we shouldn't live in doubt because nothing's too hard for God. I don't know what kind of God you believe in, but I believe in a big, 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 everybody say big God. 
big God. I believe in this huge God that can take my little bit of doubt and go, it's not that big a deal, Jeff. Don't let your doubt ruin your faith. Blessed are those, Jesus says, that believe without seeing. We've got to believe without seeing. We've got to harvest that doubt. Let Jesus' death destroy the doubt that you have in the concept of doubt in your life. Doubt is not sinful, but it can be extremely dangerous. And I want to tell you five ways to get away from it. It's what you do with doubt that matters. I have thoughts that come in all the time. And either I romance them or I I, I capture them and say, that's not good. I'm not responsible for the thoughts that come in my head. I'm responsible for what I do with those thoughts and those doubts. Five ways to move from your doubt. First, and I got to go through this because I want to get to the end. It says, admit that your doubts, admit your doubts and ask for help. Isn't that what John the Baptist did? He came and he was locked up and he was distant and he was supposed to be working. It's like, man, I should be in ministry. I should be out there with Jesus leading people into faith and baptizing. And I should be doing all this stuff. And now I'm locked up and I'm not doing the will of God and I'm not working. And I need to ask. I need to admit my doubts and ask for help. That's what John did. God's not fragile. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your fears, your worries, and your unanswered questions. Once again, he's a big God. He can handle all of that. He's running the universe, and this is going to hurt some of your feelings, without your help. I know you're trying to help, but he's saying, please stop. He's running. and He's actually doing a pretty good job. So just get out of the way. Your doubts don't upset him. You need to bring your doubts before him. You need to bring your cries and, 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 and your, your issues. And you need to bring it before God and let him deal with your doubts. And here's what I would say at the end of this. Go to a Christian friend, a pastor, an elder, a leader. Anyone that you see with strong faith and say, I have doubts. I'm struggling. And will you walk with me for this season for a few months or for a few weeks or through Easter week or through the next year? And you will find that your doubts will lessen if you're really honest with them. The second thing is don't be afraid to borrow some, of, some faith. I'll tell you a quick story. Several years ago well, when we were at the Boys and Girls Club, a woman came to me and she was telling me she was going through a horrible divorce. She doesn't go to our church. I met a lot of people, still meet a lot of people in this church and outside other churches. And we were talking. She goes to another church. And she said, man, I'm going through it. My faith is weak right now. I'm, I'm, I'm failing. And I'm so upset. You know, and out of nowhere I just said, you know what? I got a lot of faith right now. Our church got like 45 people. We're on fire. That was true. We had real people coming, like humans. And I said, borrow some of my faith. You know what? And then I forgot that I said that. And we went in and we talked. And you know what? She came about a year ago and she goes, you know what, Jeff? That meant so much to me. And you know me, I started to cry. Because I forgot what I said. And she goes, my me borrowing your faith and some faith in people in my church, it bridged the gap to that next place. We sometimes can borrow faith of other people to help us get to that faithful place that God wants us to go. Number three, act on your faith, not on your doubts. Here's what I've been taught. This is a recovery principle. Here's what I've taught. Don't think yourself into right action. Act yourself into right thinking. Don't think yourself into right action because we'll sit and ponder and wonder, but we need to act ourselves. And here's what it says. Act, you, act on your faith, not on your doubts. Noah did. Noah acted on his faith when he built an ark, right? Abram 
acted on his faith when he was told to leave a country. And then when he became Abraham, he acted on his faith when he put his son on the offering block, on the altar. How about Moses when he was told to march towards the Red Sea and into the sea and the sea parted? He acted on faith and led on dry ground. When David faced Goliath, he acted on faith. When Joshua marched to Jericho, they acted on faith, not on doubt. When Nehemiah built a wall, it was all on faith. And when Daniel went to the fire, he was stepping into faith saying, Lord, I'm walking into this. And if I'm going to burn, praise God. And if not, I'm going to glorify God in the moment of burning. I'm going to act on faith. Do you think these heroes didn't have doubt? We know the end of the story because we read it for years and years. But trust me, as you're walking into the fire, you can see doubt in Daniel's head. It's like, I don't know if he's going to save me. But if he does, it's going to be awesome. If not, I'll see you in heaven. You know what they did? They took a deep breath. And they decided, I'm going to walk in faith today. I'm not going to walk in doubt. And that's what we need to do. Take a deep breath and act on our faith and watch God work. Number four, doubt your doubts, not your faith. Too often when we get into a circumstantial place of doubting, we start doubting our faith. Where are you, God? How come I can't hear you and see you? How come I'm hurting? Don't you know I'm a pastor of a church and I tied last week? Didn't you see it? We don't doubt our faith. We doubt our doubts. This simply means that when you're in the valley, when you're in darkness, as many of us get in our life, don't toss your faith aside. When you're in the valley, don't throw God under the bus. Throw that doubt under the bus. When you're in this place in the valley and all things are uncertain, you're tempted by your doubts and your fears and your worries, I want you to remember two words. Write these down if you can. Keep walking. Keep walking. Just keep walking. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. We got to keep walking. Nothing is gained by being camped in the valley of darkness. Nothing is gained by being camped out. All you can do is keep walking and walking away from your doubts and into the light of Jesus Christ. And as you keep walking, victory will start to shine over your life and you will start to ascend like Jesus did as in the triumphant entry. Keep walking. Keep walking. Don't stay in the valley. Keep walking and watch God work. Finally, the last one is keep going back to what you know to be true. I I love this point. This is something I do a lot. You got to keep going back to what you know is true. Isn't that what Jesus was pointing John the Baptist at? Go back to what you know. Aren't you the guy that says, behold, this is the Lamb of God? Aren't you the one that said, this is the one that's going to transform and change the world? This is who you are. And Jesus is pointing John back to the truth. Go back to what you know. Super important. As Paul was pondering the the life and struggles and suffering in Christ, he wrote Romans 8 triumphantly. And he says, nothing in the universe can ever separate me from you. i got to go back to what I know. I've got to go back to a place of preaching to myself. You know, me, I go to my life verse when trouble hits. 
When you're flying through the airplane and all of a sudden you drop about 150 feet and your stomach goes. You're like, if God is for me, this plane ain't going down. Or if it is, I'm going to be in heaven. You got to go back to what you know. And in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 12, it says, I know whom I believe. At some point, I've got to believe and know what I believe and know, and I'm not going to live in doubt. God never turns a de- a, an honest downer away. He says, no, come to me. Bring your skepticism. Bring your unbelief. Bring your hard questions, your uncertainty. Bring all the things that you're struggling with. Bring them before him. Doubt is not a sin. But it's what you do with it that changes and transforms. Here's what it says in the Bible. At the very end of 11, I just want to close with this. At this time, Jesus prayed, O Father of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think wise, who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing to them to the childlike. Yes, Father. Yes, Father, it pleased, I I can't do this, right? He says, yes, Father, it was pleased you to do it this way. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the wise and the clever, that intellect, that's going to struggle. But those that come and dummy down and have childlike faith, God is pleased. My Father has entrusted me. Everything to me. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And those whom the Son has chosen to reveal. And then Jesus says this. As he's teaching us, here's what he says. Come to me, all that are weary and heavy burdened. All your doubts, all of your uncertainty, all of your struggles. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy to bear and my burden is light. My burden is light. And I want to close with this. There was a saying that I found this week, and it says, let your faith roar so loud that you're, it says, let your faith roar so loud that you can't hear what your doubt is saying. God is working in our doubt today. And I just want to pray. And my prayer is, as we bow our heads and we get ready to worship God a little bit more, that Jesus will create a triumphant entry into your heart this week. That you will allow him to move and do wonderful things. And watch God work boldly in our lives. Father, we come before you today and we praise you for whatever doubt we have. We praise you for that. And ask that you work deeply within our doubt, within our fear, within our, in, our uncertainty. And we ask for you to move out all the distractions, all the things that are holding us back. And for you, Lord, if there's someone here that feels the tug of, of, of the kingdom calling their soul. If that's you and you're here today and you feel God speaking and moving and you feel like you want to repent and become a child of God. Repeat after me a prayer of salvation. And it goes like this. Father, forgive me. Come into my heart, my soul. And into my life. You died and you rose again so that I may have eternal life, a life everlasting. I thank you for that, Lord. Remove all my doubts and fears and anoint me with your Holy Spirit so that I can learn to walk all the days of my life. I love you, King Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's worship Jesus Christ.